Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in on this snowy winter week for Rebecca Shear. And today we're going to dive headfirst into a topic that just seems unavoidable at this time of year. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. You had me at hello. Why do you hate me so? I don't hate you. Oh, I suppose you love me, sir. Oh, why should I? What have you done to make me love you? Well, I don't want you to love me. I don't. You should be kissed and often, and by someone who knows how. I'm in love with you. I'm so in love with you. That's right. This week, our focus is on love. And not just romantic love. For those of you who might be a little burnt out on the chocolates and flowers routine, we'll also hear from people who are passionate about their work. From a veteran go-go musician. I look at it as just, I'm just a working musician now. In this business, you never know. You know, you could be down one time and up the other. As long as I'm working, yeah. I'm cool. To a waterman trying to bring back the oyster industry in Maryland's coastal bays. You got to put a lot of money out. You don't have too much coming in. Um, like we're seeing today, you got to deal with the elements. You got to be ready for anything. But first, we begin our show with the story of love flourishing in some pretty inhospitable circumstances. Brian Hawkins and Davinia Miles Hawkins met on the streets of Washington, D.C. They've both been homeless since about 2009 and first met that very year. After four years of getting to know each other, they pooled their very limited resources and got married on Valentine's Day of last year. But their first year of marriage has been tougher than they expected. It included spending many nights apart from one another after Brian violated his parole. They met me this week at Miriam's Kitchen, where they often go for a free breakfast. We talked about how their romance began and how they found an antidote to the isolation of homelessness. It was all love. <laughs> I first walked through the park one day, and my wife was sitting on the bench, and she said something to me. She rolled up to me. She was the one who pursued me and kind of threw me off, because most men always pursue women. And uh, she hit me with it. If I leave the park, then I'll take a piece of her soul with me. I was looking at her like, is this woman all right? <laughs> but I could see she had a smile on her face, and I thought she was just playing. So I told her, I said, okay, well, just hold tight, baby. I'll be right back. And I had to go over to the store. As I came back from the store, she came and sat down beside me, and we and her started conversating from then on in. And that was all love. Something about his smile. I said, we hung out, and we talked, and then I took him to my daughter's house and let him stay over there with me for a while and get to meet my grandkids and my daughter. She loved them. We've just been together ever since. We just stayed together constantly. We was always together doing everything, going to the movies, going out to eat, uh, going different places, showing the museums, you know, things like that, things that people don't do anymore. You know, I mean, that's what we decided doing. And we've just been together ever since. We panhandled the money. We got it together. And we decided we're going to go do it on Valentine's Day since everybody's birthday is in February. His birthday is the 17th, mine's the 20th. Why don't we just have everything big happen in one month? So we got married. I've been on parole for almost 26 years. 
Uh, it was for distribution of crack cocaine when I was a kid. I didn't know any better. I, mean, I know better now, but I just didn't know better then. Me and my wife was walking down the street, and I grabbed her by her coat and told her, come on. So the police officer thought that we were having a, you know, a fight or whatever. They took me to jail, whatever the case may be. They stepped me back for a couple months. They put me in Federal City. It's a place where if you don't have a place to live, a transition house, you don't have a place to live, that's where they put you. And my wife couldn't come with me. Well, we have a tent at 15th and the overhang where the caribou is, we have a tent. We put this down every night, but we have to pick it up every day. Yeah. It's nothing like having your own home. I would have to build everything that he does. I would have to do it myself. This was my car. This was, this was, this was in the tent. This was cardboard, you know. And I would have to build it. It might not be as tall as my husband would like it, but it would be around me where nobody would be able to raid my space. So we've been through, I don't like to say it already, but hell. You know what I mean? But we made it. You know, we're still here. We're surviving. People always keep saying, man, how can two homeless people be on the street and be that much in love? Well, I love my wife. Dearly, most definitely, I would never cheat on, never do anything wrong. I will always show my wife the love and respect that she's supposed to have. Because the one thing that we never had in this lifetime living on the street was respect. We don't look to be on no pedestal. We're not the greatest couple in the world. Um, we have our problems. We argue. We bicker. But the most important thing that we do best of all is we know how to show each other love. We know when one is not feeling happy. If something's on one's mind, we can look at him. Brian, what's wrong with you? Or he'll look at me. Are you okay, baby? Do you want to talk about some things? If you find somebody that you truly love, stay with them. You know, no matter what the problem or situation is. If you love that person, that love's going to be there. As long as that person loves you like you love them, that's true love right there. You can't get away from that. You know what I mean? If you walk away from that, you're a fool. Davinia and Brian are still without a permanent roof over their heads. Right now, home is a tent they set up each night on the corner of 15th and M Streets in Northwest. But they're both looking for work and hope that will soon change. We'll head to Virginia now, where someday soon, same-sex couples who are in love may be able to get legally married. Late Thursday night, U.S. District Judge Arenda L. Wright Allen in Norfolk struck down Virginia's constitutional ban on same-sex marriage. This won't go into effect until appeals courts have weighed in, but Wright Allen compared the ruling to the historic 1967 case which legalized interracial marriage. She wrote, We have arrived upon another moment in history when we the people becomes more inclusive and our freedom more perfect. Jacob Fenston spoke with one of the Virginia couples at the heart of the case. Hi, I'm Mary. Nice to meet you. That's Junie. That's Junie. Mary Townley and Carol Shaw live in a big, well-kept house in suburban Richmond with their 16-year-old daughter, Emily. Emily, hi. Shaw and Townley were married in San Francisco in 2008. Virginia doesn't recognize their relationship, but they say most Virginians are ready to accept families like theirs. Looking at the people just that we know in Chesterfield County, Virginia, 
I've barely met anybody who didn't support us as a family. And we're living in a neighborhood that, you know, would be characterized as very, for lack of a better term, very Republican, very red. Attitudes have changed a lot over the decades Shawl and Townley have been together. They met 30 years ago, working together at a school in rural Winchester, Virginia. We felt very, very at risk. We felt like we had to keep this secret for fear of losing our jobs, for fear of retribution by friends. So we just maintained this facade of, oh, we're just friends. And I I vividly remember we went out of town with another couple. We, We felt a little more free because we were not in our hometown. And so we were able to be ourselves a little bit more. But as soon as we got back into Winchester, our friends who were much, very, very worried about being identified as being a couple, they told us even in the back, we were sitting in a van, they said, spread yourselves apart, don't hold hands, don't do anything, we're back. They were so afraid of being, you know, identified. So so why is it important to you to have, I mean, because marriage, in it, like, at its root is, is a commitment between two people, and you did that. So why is it important to have an official sanction of, of that relationship? Why does the state need to be involved at all? Well, I'll start with the fact that I feel as a parent that... Um, having marriage in your relationship solidifies that relationship a step further. Um, the legal standpoint, as far as paperwork, taxes and all, Carol might want to speak to that. You know, um, when Mary was pregnant with Emily, she had a health crisis. She woke up one morning. She said, my stomach doesn't feel very good. And within, a, like, minutes, she was doubled over in pain, couldn't talk. Um, I, like, rushed her into the emergency room. I parked in the emergency room bay just to get her in the door. They met us there with a wheelchair, wheeled her back. I had her purse. I checked her in. And then they said, well, now you have to go move the car. Of course, I'll move the car. So I ran out to the car and, you know, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm scared. I run back in, get the car parked, run back in. And I say, okay, how is she? And they said, what's your relationship to her? And I said, I'm her partner. And they said, we can't tell you. At that moment, it became so clear that I was living in a world where They don't recognize me as even important to her. They weren't going to share any information with me. And I'll never forget that moment of feeling so powerless. Right now, legally, now of course this is my family, Mary and Emily, but legally I'm a stranger to them. Emily, I'd like to ask you, what what do you think about your parents going to court? Um, Well, I think it's really cool that they're doing all this. I mean, they got married in California. I was there. saw it happen. But, I mean, I've always saw them as my parents. I really, probably not until, like, fifth grade when I saw them get married, I realized that they technically weren't married in the first place. So that was really weird. What was it like being um, in the courthouse and and hearing your personal relationship being debated? We keep pinching ourselves. We think back to the 80s and how we were so afraid. We look at us now, 30 years later, and here we are in court, and they're defending our life. Wow. You know, that's just incredible. I would add that the other side of that, listening to the defendants talk about us, was was a little bit difficult, I think, for all of us. What was difficult to listen to in in those arguments from the defendants? Well, I think it was difficult to listen to um, folks making an argument that were bad for Emily. It definitely was frustrating hearing the other side talk 
you know, you just kind of wanted to get up there and tell them what you thought, but obviously you couldn't. But that's why we had our attorneys because then they would speak for us. But um, it was really interesting experience. I'm happy I was there. I think there's a part of us, or at least a part of me, that you kind of get used to those arguments. We've heard it for so long, even when we're just leaving the courthouse and the protesters are out there, you know, with their signs and how wrong we are. And it's like, yeah, well, I know, I know, we're wrong, whatever. Because I know I'm not wrong. I know I'm a good person, I'm a worthy person. I'm in love with somebody who maybe you don't think I should love, but you know what? You're, you're not ruining my life. That was Mary Townley and Carol Shaw, along with their daughter, Emily Townley, speaking with Metro Connections' Jacob Fenston. A federal judge ruled on the case Thursday, striking down Virginia's ban on same-sex marriage pending appeal. In a minute, one man's long-running love affair with D.C.'s funky music scene. My whole life has been music. That's my thing, uh, and, and I think I've been lucky. And we'll head out on the water with a guy who's trying to bring back the oyster industry on the coast. We put on our wetsuits, got out there, and got oysters for uh, some of our customers. Um, and it's cold, man. <laughs> it, it's cold. Our love show continues on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Jonathan Wilson in this week for Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Our theme this week is love, and in this next segment, we'll take a breather from passion of the romantic variety to meet people in love with their jobs. In just a bit, we'll talk with a trumpeter who was once part of Chuck Brown's band and is now helping newlyweds bust loose on the dance floor after decades on the D.C. music scene. But first, we're going to head out on the water for this week's On the Coast. In which Brian Russo brings us the latest from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. Today, he introduces us to John Apple, a young waterman working to revive the once-thriving oyster industry in Maryland's coastal bays. Well, the oyster, oyster kind of put this spot on the map, you know, Stockton, uh, Greenbackville and Virginia and all. They were, uh, they took advantage of the big Chincoteague oysters out of here in Chincoteague Bay uh, back at the turn of the 19th century and even before that, you know. So... The salt of this water, the uh, abandonment of the area kind of brought us to it and, and knew it would be a good spot to, to do something like this, to try to bring back that, that old seafood uh, industry. Yeah. So much has been said about how lucrative and how prosperous oyster farming was a century ago. It's essentially, as you said, what put little towns you know, on the eastern shore on the map. It's, mm-hmm. It was the main economic driver. Of course, over the last century, you know, the oyster population has almost disappeared. It's 99% depleted from what it was. 
but now it's starting to come back. Tell people what it's like to be an oyster farmer today. Definitely the startup is, is uh, you know, pretty hard. Uh, you got to put a lot of money out. You don't have too much coming in. Um, like we're seeing today, you got to deal with the elements. You got to be ready for anything. And uh, really, it's just the way you customize your business to fit the environment around you will make it that much easier on yourself. Um, and then being able to see the reward afterwards just gives you that much more motivation. And so far, we're, we're seeing a reward just is, is taking a little bit longer than, than we would have liked to. You know, I have, I've talked with many watermen in the region, and, and they have voiced concern about the next generation of oyster farmers or uh, getting into the business. You're a young guy. What made you want to get into the business? I just love the, I, I love the water. Um, I love this area. You know, we've done some work down here in the past, construction-wise, and, and um, it was always neat coming down here and, and uh, spending time down here on the water. And then just, you know, your love of seafood, your love of the water kind of really gets you into the uh, whole feeling of, uh, you know, I, I'd like to make that a big part of my life, you know. I'd like to raise a family by bringing my kid up in and around these waters down here. It's a, it's a special special area of Maryland, you know. We're, we're uh, very Maryland strong down around these parts, sure. you know. <laughs> so tell me where we're headed right now. Well, we got here, we, we've got a two-acre lease that we were rewarded um, this past August of 2013. So you can see our four corners uh, marked by reflective signs. These are newly planted oysters, planted back in uh, September and October. So this morning we came down just to check on everything after all the, the, the ice and all. So today we'll, we'll be pulling them up to show you guys uh, the growth since September and October, or the lack of growth because of the cold weather. Right. Tell me what a cold snap like we've had in the last few weeks does to the oyster and, and the challenges that it you know provides or, or creates for oyster farmers like yourself. Well, there's different forms of uh, oyster farming, aquaculture. Um, you know, some resort, resort to floats on the surface of the water. We resorted to racks that are on the bottom. So when you do have ice you know forming on the surface that doesn't impact the oyster too much just because they're underwater but if you know if they are subjected to freezing temperatures to ice you know they become frozen oysters and and they're no good anymore (laughs) (laughs) now for you when it freezes over yeah uh tell me what your last few weeks have been like pretty slow and and warm because we've just been inside you know uh a lot of the um, our customers don't like it too much when we say we're sorry we can't get out there and, and get you our product but right now but you know we, we've braved it a couple times we put on our wetsuits got out there and got oysters for uh, some of our customers um, and it's cold man <laughs> it's cold that was John Apple of the Bay Landing Shellfish Company out on the water of Maryland's coastal bays with Metro Connections Brian Russo
The guy we'll meet next also loves his work, and a good thing, too, because he's been at it since the 1960s. His name is Donald Tillery, and he's a musician who survived all sorts of ups and downs in the D.C. music scene. Chris Klimek brings us his story. This is We the People. It's the title track from the Soul Searcher's debut album from 1972. That's Chuck Brown, the future godfather of Go-Go, singing lead. Let's meet the guy playing that trumpet. My name is uh, Donald Tillery. I'm a musician here in in, uh, Washington, D.C. I played with um, the original Soul Searchers, Chuck Brown and Soul Searchers Band. I've been playing, oh, over 20, 30 years. A lot longer than that, right? It's been longer than that, yeah, but, you know, I'm cheating, you know. know. Yeah, it's been longer than that. It's been longer than that. In the 60s, Tillery had had his own group, the Epsilons. Chuck Brown was already a figure of legend, a guy who'd served eight years in prison for killing a man before he founded the Soul Searchers in 1966. I've heard about the Soul Searchers, you know, and I knew about Chuck and, you know, all the musicians in the city knew because they were at the top group around playing, gigging, you know. I mean, every time you heard him on the radio and mm-hmm. all this. When Brown turned up at one of the Epsilon's regular Friday night gigs, he liked what he heard. Brown invited Tillery to rehearse with the Soul Searchers, and soon he was playing with the group four or five nights a week. Every night, some weeks. But Tillery was still getting up at 7 in the morning for his day job. As a counselor in a group home for abused children, he had to be at work at 8 a.m., and some nights he wasn't getting home until 4. So I didn't have that much time to sleep. I actually wind up coming from a gig at the squad room, and I, I fell asleep at the wheel. I had an accident right around the reservoir, around the, the yeah, yeah, how it, yeah. mm-hmm. and I fell asleep in the car. I had a firebird and uh, I slammed into uh, the pole. The car was totaled, but Tillery escaped the wreck with only bruises. He finally quit his day job to go full time with the Soul Searchers in 1974. By the time of their third album in 1978, the Soul Searchers had become Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers. Title song from Bustin' Loose was their biggest hit. They were invited to Los Angeles to play on the TV show Soul Train in 1979, and their frontman was persuaded, as Tillery puts it, to position himself as a solo artist. The Soul Searchers came home to D.C. and played gigs without him for a while, but it's hard to keep a band together. There were legal problems, there were drug problems, the drummer left to play for Miles Davis. Tillery finally quit the group in 1986. Freelance as a horn player, but by the end of the 80s, he was back in a 9-to-5 as an animal care technician with the National Institutes of Health. While he was taking dead rats out of cages, the song Ashley's Roach Clip from the Soul Searcher's second album, Salt of the Earth, was becoming one of the most off-sampled tracks in pop music. Tillery played trumpet and percussion on the tune, but he wasn't earning royalties. Several years passed before he started playing in a regular Wednesday night jam session at a nightclub called Felix on 18th Street in Adams Morgan. The regulars finally coalesced into the Truth Groove Band. The club's owner promoted them to regular Friday and Saturday night slots. Around 2000, Truth Groove signed with Elan Artists, a booking agency that got them started playing weddings and corporate events. Tillery was delighted. These kinds of gigs pay better than the clubs, he says, and... The variety of music he gets to play is more diverse. That's the best part, of, to me, the best part of uh, the wedding circuit. You get to 
to mingle with other people, you know, and you get to play stuff that you want to play. And, you know, I'm a jazz. I like jazz. Yeah. I love jazz. So we we play the jazz, and we'll start getting into the funk stuff, and we wearing nice yeah. suits and uniforms. Truth Groove is on winter hiatus right now, but here it is covering Beyonce from a gig. Tillery says business is down in the years since the recession hit. He also thinks marriage itself is less popular than it used to be. He says Truth Group plays 10 to 15 weddings a year now, always between April and November, out of maybe your 20 or 30 performances overall. I look at it as just, I'm just a working musician now. In this business, you never know. You know, you could be down one time and up the other. As long as I'm working, yeah. I'm cool. I'm Chris Klemek. You can take a trip back to the 70s on our website. We've got a Soul Searcher's promotional photo and album covers on metroconnection.org. And if you've got a favorite memory of the D.C. go-go scene, we'd love to hear it. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. We'll now turn from music to photography and the work of a man named Elliot Elisafan. He was a photographer who captured scenes of everyday life in Africa in the years after World War II. Those photos are now on display at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African Art. NPR's Susan Stamberg brings us the story. Before World War II, most Americans got their ideas about Africa from movies filmed on Hollywood sound stages. <laughs> Tarzan the Ape Man in the African Jungles. After the war, thanks in no small part to the work of a Life magazine photographer named Elliot Elisafin, a new light was shed on what had been viewed as the dark continent. He redefined Africa in a kind of a new and a complex way for American audiences. And he brought Africa into their living rooms in Life magazine curator Amy Staples. She created this exhibit from an archive of 60,000 prints and negatives Elisafin gave to the African Art Museum, which he helped her found. In the late 1940s, he converted an old ambulance into a studio and drove it from Cape Town to Cairo. He came in early. He was probably one of the first photographers to travel extensively in Africa after World War II. He came upon a Sudanese woman and got her on the cover of life. The heroic pose that she has, the beauty of her headdress, her confidence. Another woman wears a pendant with etchings of Sudanese village life. These are made out of aluminum that came from a downed airplane. He bought the pendant. He liked showing how traditional mixed with modern in African design and crafts. Amy Staples says Elliot Elisafin got the Africa bug in 1942 as a combat photographer with General George Patton. He photographed the first action pictures of World War II from Tunisia. 
That was an important trip for him. He actually became interested in Africa because of the 42 trip. And then he went back to Africa for life to cover the visit of King George VI. Traveling with the British king in 1947, Elisafin encounters a king of the Congo and asks to take his picture for life. The king shows up bedecked in full coronation regalia, an outfit passed down from father to son. This costume is beautifully decked out with cowrie shells and beads and brass wire. He's wearing medals, a headdress. A leopard skin. Brass bracelets climb his legs. People really hadn't seen that kind of detail and that kind of costume and that kind of beauty and dignity before. He holds a spear in one hand, a lance in the other. Oh, and on his head, a helmet with a handful of feathers stuck on top. It took him three hours to get dressed for this photograph, and the costume itself weighs over 300 pounds. Once he was ready, the king made a request of Elisafin. The king wanted a full-length mirror brought out so he could see how he looked, and Elisafin said, the only other time that happened to me was with Ginger Rogers. Regal, dignified, but the caption life put with the picture was disparaging. A fat black monarch. Elisafin hated that caption and spent much of his career as a photographer and filmmaker providing evidence to the contrary. Evidence for all America and the rest of the world to see. I think what he did is he created a more intimate view of Africa. There was a humanity there. He was actually trying to educate audiences in the United States about how he perceived the real Africa to be. Today, tourists visit Africa regularly, in planes, not pokey pre-war ships. Their exposure to what was only viewed as a remote, exotic, often fearful place was launched by the photographs Elliot Elisafin started taking there almost 70 years ago. I'm Susan Stamberg, NPR News, Washington. You can check out Africa Reviewed, the photographic legacy of Elliot Elisafin, at the National Museum of African Art through March 2nd. And you can see some of Elisafin's work on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break the perils of seeking a soulmate in the digital age. A client once told me that online dating was like ordering a pizza. And at first I laughed at him. And then I thought about it for a second. I was like, that's kind of a sad truth. Because online dating, unfortunately, does make people pickier than they might normally be. It's coming up next on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in this week for Rebecca Shear. This week, our theme is love, and our next story is about the often elusive search for that special someone. These days, many people begin that search online with a dating site like eHarmony or OkCupid. But wading into the murky waters of online dating takes a bit of courage. That's where Erica Etten comes in. She's an online matchmaker of sorts. 
Lauren Oberb caught up with her to find out what singletons can do to improve their odds of finding love in the digital age. Erica Etten is excellent at online dating, if she does say so herself. Her dance card is pretty well booked between now and forever. That makes sense, since Etten makes her living helping other people get dates. The 32-year-old is the matchmaker behind A Little Nudge, a D.C.-based company that guides folks as they navigate this whole online dating thing. Her business began casually. My friends started coming to me, well, what are you doing? What are you doing that I'm not doing? So I just started writing their profiles, and I thought, I wonder if I can turn this into a business. And almost three years ago to the day, I quit my job at Fannie Mae and started the business, and I, I couldn't be happier. Etten, a Cornell-trained economist with an MBA from Georgetown, ditched her job at the government-sponsored mortgage giant and struck out as a kind of dating intermediary for the digital age. She now helps clients from their 20s to their 70s write better online profiles, select more flattering photos, and even reach out to potential dates. I'd say most people who read the profile say, wow, it really sounds like me. And that, gosh, that's the best compliment I could get. (laughs) Okay, so it's one thing to, like, help a friend or two. Why would I pay you to help me? How do I know you know anything? (laughs) So why would you pay me to help you? That's a good question. What I add is I meet with every client for an hour, and in that hour, I really get to know you, and I really get to know what you're looking for, and I look at you objectively, whereas you are obviously biased towards yourself, but I'm not. So I want to make sure you're putting your best foot forward, but in a way that makes you really stand out. We decided to put Etten's electronic matchmaking skills to the test. Enter our guinea pig. Well, my name is Angela Boyd. I'm 32. I work at a nonprofit organization in Washington. I grew up in Kansas. And she's an avid online dater. Boyd figures in the couple of years she's been online dating, she's been out with somewhere between 60 and 80 guys. So I joined eHarmony two years ago. I did that for about a year. I met a lot of really nice people, but nobody who really stuck or that I was that excited about. And so all of my friends were on OkCupid. And I thought, well, it's free and it's easy. And everyone in D.C. who's single seems to be on it. So I joined that about a year ago and have been having sort of a similar experience. In an effort to increase her chances at finding love online, Boyd agreed to let Etten comb through her online profile and find ways to make it sing. I should say she reluctantly agreed. I'm super skeptical of Erica, and I haven't met her yet, and I'm sure she's very nice and very good at what she does. But Boyd is already pretty happy with her profile, even though it hasn't landed her that special someone. You know, I think there are some things that really matter about online dating. I think your pictures are one of them. My pictures look like me, and I'm not trying to catfish anybody. My profile grammatically correct. It is illustrative of... The things that I enjoy in life without being overbearing or having super long lists or that kind of thing. I'm really interested to hear what Erica has to say. I'm just not totally convinced that her suggestions will be things that I agree with or that I haven't already thought of myself. Hello. Hi. 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 How are you? Hi. Angela, Erica, Erica, Angela. Hi, Hi Erica. I'm so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> So I looked at your OkCupid profile, and I would like to go through first the pictures. Okay. Okay. I hope you're amenable to all of my my suggestions. I may or may not be, but you should go ahead. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so first of all, you had eight pictures in your profile, and I only recommend three to five. 
the reality of it is less is more. Etten recommended that Boyd ditch photos that included babies, good-looking men, her female friends, really any photos that would pull focus away from her. Then they looked at Boyd's profile. So I actually really liked your profile. It was definitely more creative than most people's profiles. It wasn't the boring, you know, I like to go out and stay in. I like to dress up and dress down. I like to travel. So I love that about you. I liked a lot of the things you had in here. I just reordered it so that what I found was the most interesting stuff was on top. And then I actually put some things in bullet points because I thought there's such interesting things that I really want them to stand out. I think your idea of bullet points makes sense because I think it it is easier to read, right? Especially when you're on your phone, which everybody's on their phone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, that might be the only point Boyd conceded. Etten also recommended she change her username to something jazzier than some letters in an area code. But Boyd liked the brevity of it. Oh, it's efficient. It says I live in D.C. Honestly, I couldn't really think of anything better, and I didn't think it was that big of a deal. At the end of their session, Boyd agreed to take the matchmaker's advice, if only for a week. As soon as she changed her profile, she got a couple of messages. The best one said, quote, What should I do to take the rare gemstone for a drink? Can you help me out and give me a hint? Smiley face. We should grab a drink if we both free tonight. (laughs) And that's how that went. (laughs) The rare gemstone was not impressed. Not by that potential suitor or any of the other men who contacted her since she tweaked her profile. Because the reality is that even with a matchmaker's best advice, finding true love is still an inexact science. I'm Lauren Ober. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a fine, catch me a catch. Matchmaker, matchmaker, look through your book and make me a perfect match. We've got more of Erica Etten's online dating tips, plus audio of Angela Boyd reading some of the most colorful online dating messages she's gotten on our website, metroconnection.org. So, we've talked dating, we've talked marriage, now we're going to talk about a very different kind of love, the love parents feel for their kids. Back in June, we first brought you the story of a local dad named Richie Lynch. Richie is the dad of triplets. He's also a quadriplegic. He broke his neck back in the late 80s. Rebecca Shear caught up with Lynch to talk about the challenges and joys of raising his children. Being a father can be really hard work, you know? One of the country's most famous fathers, President Barack Obama, said so himself during his annual Father's Day address back in 2011. Hi, everybody. This Father's Day weekend, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes talking about what's sometimes my hardest, but always my most rewarding job, being a dad. I mean, not only are you making sure your children are clothed and fed, you're also trying to equip them with what they need for a happy and fulfilling life. For Maryland native Richie Lynch, though, being a dad has been especially tough. For one thing, it took him and his wife a while to get there. We were married for three years or so. She's going to kill me if I don't get the dates right. Until we, and then we had, uh, then we decided to have a family. Tried the natural way, but I was told my guys were a little bit too slow. So I had to break out the science. Science as in in vitro fertilization. And after four rounds of IVF in the early 2000s, Richie and his wife learned they weren't just due for one child. They were due for three. What was it like to get the news? After they cleaned me up off the floor, the uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all a blur. 
The babies wound up being born pretty early, just 29 weeks into the pregnancy. And the smallest of the three was tiny, a whopping 1 pound 16 ounces. But besides the triplets, something else has challenged 46-year-old Richie Lynch as a father, too, in a major way. I am a C5 quadriplegic. Broke my neck way back in 87. He was 21, a college kid, and he and some buddies had been partying at a wedding reception in Maryland. After several cocktails too many, they stumbled upon a swimming pool. A swimming pool that I was unfamiliar with. And Richie decided he'd dive in. I dove in. And he landed in the shallow end. Hit the top of my head, I remember that. But the collision didn't knock him out, not instantly, anyway. I played football for years, and you get these things called stingers when you hit your head too hard and your neck, and you feel a little, uh, little electricity shoot down to your fingertips, maybe sometimes, depending how you get hit. Only this time, Richie didn't just feel that electricity shooting down to his fingertips. This time, it was all four limbs. And that's when he knew, right then and there. I did something bad. Soon after, Richie Lynch passed out. And when he came to, he was in a bed in Bethesda's suburban hospital. Tubes sticking out of everywhere. They're worried about pneumonia. He wound up fighting pneumonia for several weeks. And when the doctors finally diagnosed his broken neck... My neck had atrophied a little bit and it slipped out of place. They did surgery to stabilize his spinal cord, which luckily hadn't been severed all the way through. It only has impaired the motor side. I still have a sensory sides intact. So now Richie is considered a C5 quadriplegic. As far as the disability is concerned, there are a lot of different levels. There's the, there's the Christopher Reeve quadriplegic. He broke his, his vertebrae higher up in his neck. He was a C2, C3. But as a C5, Richie has a bit more ability. Granted, he is impaired in all four limbs. About mid-chest down, I don't have any voluntary muscle control. His triceps don't really function, which limits his reach. And my hands don't open and close voluntarily. But he can propel himself in a wheelchair. And that, he says, has come in mighty handy as he's dashed around raising his triplets. Brendan, Haley, and Nicole. And they are 12 now? How old are they? 12 years old, doing the middle school thing. And all the craziness and drama that comes along with it. Okay, so maybe the kids can be a little bit difficult every now and then. But here's the thing. Through it all, Richie says, they've always accepted him, just as he is. Um, from their point of view, Dad's always been in a chair, so to them it's just Dad's in a chair. And when they were younger, I was a jungle gym, so so they, they would crawl all over the place, get their fingers in my wheels. I was basically stuck. Something else that's been weirdly special about him, the chair, and his children, Richie says, has to do with height. I'm a little more accessible to him, height-wise. And speed I can't get up and boogie whenever I want to. So they uh, spend a lot of time coming up and chit-chatting with me and talking and, and giving me hugs when I don't expect it. So as a dad that can't really go out and throw the ball with my kids or do some of those things, that I try and make up for it in other ways. He also tries to teach his kids some indispensable lessons. Because every now and again, they have come up to him and asked, Dad, do you ever wish you weren't in a chair? And I said, of course. I mean, if if I could roll it all over again and, and do it, I definitely wouldn't be in the chair. I was not headed down the right path when I wasn't in the chair. And, and being in the chair certainly wakes you up right away and gets you serious about life. It also gets you serious about how quickly life can change. Uh, so appreciate what you have now. Don't take it for granted. I try and remind them what they have 
and not to dwell on what they don't have. And Richie does try to practice what he preaches. Not that he's some sort of Pollyanna. Yeah, things that are pain in the ass. Not being in charge of your own personal care. I mean, showers and going to the bathroom and stuff. Yeah, that's a real hassle. But overall, he says, life is pretty sweet. Thanks to months of rehab at MedStar National Rehabilitation Hospital, he strengthened whatever mobility he had left. Thanks to new technology, he can wheel around and work his dream job as a graphic designer, which might seem, you know, a bit unexpected. You hear a quad's coming in for a job interview as a graphic designer, and you... (laughs) Oh my God, how's he going to do this? Most of all, though, Richie Lynch can look around at his life and recognize the preciousness of what he's got. Going down the hallway in rehab, there were guys that were these high quads. And then you're, you're pretty happy that you can scratch your own nose. You can hug your own kids. Yeah, it's, it's true. That was local dad Richie Lynch speaking with Metro Connection's Rebecca Shear, who, fear not, will be back in the host chair next week. We've got photos of Richie and his kids through the years on our website, metroconnection.org. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Kentlands in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and the Glen Carlin neighborhood of Arlington, Virginia. My name is Neil Harris. I'm 58 years old, and I live in the Kentlands, which is a new urbanist community in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Well, Kentlands was a planned community that actually worked according to plan, which is fairly rare. Uh, People come from all over to see the Kentlands and to try to understand why it works. The Kentlands is on the west side of Gaithersburg, just off of Highway 270. Uh, If you get off uh, 270 at 370 and then come up Great Seneca Highway, we're the large community on the left of of Great Seneca. I live on Main Street in the Kentlands, uh, which is a street uh, bounded by LiveWorks homes, which are much like you see in, the, in, in a big city like Washington, D.C., uh, rows of storefronts with uh, residences and, and office spaces up above. The community is very walkable. It's, it's really built to be like a small town in the suburbs where it's self-contained. There's a shopping district. There are residential areas, and it's very easy to get from one point to another. And as you walk down the street, You typically will see people that you know and say hello and maybe go have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or or whatever. It's really a very, very strong sense of community compared to other places in the suburbs that I've lived over the years. My name is Steve Erickson. I'm 58 years old, and I live in the Glen Carlin neighborhood. The Glen Carlin neighborhood is located in Arlington. It is bounded on the north by Arlington Boulevard, on the west by Carlin Springs Road, on the east by Glen Carlin Park, and on the south by Virginia Medical Center. The land around here was surveyed by George Washington, and in the local library here we have some of his surveyor marks on a tree to mark his original um, land. In the late 1800s, a fellow named Carlin uh, moved here and built a resort in uh, an area that is now Glen Carlin Park. And his resort 
was available uh, to the folks from Washington, D.C. who would come out by train. The oldest uh, standing structure in Arlington is the John Ball House, and you can see that. Uh, you can take tours of it. Down the street from that is the original town hall that was built in the late 1800s. still serves as a town hall for the community. Lynn Carlin is really an ideal place to live because it's a combination of a very modern neighborhood that has access to lots of shopping and lots of uh, entertainment. It's also a very old neighborhood with lots of history and lots of folks that have lived here a long time. So I think it's a good combination between the two. We heard from Neil Harris in Kentland and Steve Erickson in Glen Carlin. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. Or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Rebecca Shear, Jacob Fenston, Brian Russo, and Lauren Ober, along with reporter Chris Klimek and NPR's Susan Stamberg. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Tyler Daniels. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and MetroConnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on MetroConnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of the show... You can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when our theme will be Barriers. We'll head out to the coast for the first in a two-part series on Virginia's Barrier Islands. We'll find out what life was like for people who lived on those islands and what drove them to flee to the mainland back in the 1930s. Plus, we'll talk with lawmakers about the barriers to housing for transgendered people in Maryland. It seems as if the population in Maryland is very open to JLBT rights. I don't know why my colleagues would want to put the brake on it now. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in this week for Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 885 News.